This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 285. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and joined today for the first time in, like, I don't know, a month, <laughs> Jacob Paulson. Well, me and Matthew did the uh, last episode without you. So yeah, I know. I've been around. Yeah, well, I mean, you and me together, you joining me, it's been a long time, buddy. <clears throat> yeah, okay, fair enough. So, welcome, folks, to uh, today's episode. Uh, trying to get back in the swing of things uh, after kind of being all over the place and taking a break somewhat here and there, and the holidays and everything. So, hopefully, the holidays were good, good to you and good for you. Uh, I know that for me, I had the opportunity to really reset and refresh, and uh, I'm feeling feeling great. So, hopefully, I don't get any comments about Riley. You look or sound really tired because I feel awesome. Although my legs are sore after hiking in the mountains for like four days. <laughs> I'm not going to make any comments about how awesome you look. So I'm just going to leave myself out of that. Well, the last episode, Matthew and I recorded, somebody's like, you guys look really tired. It was 1 a.m., bro. <laughs> but I felt really good then, too. I don't know. I was like, do I really look that tired? I don't know. All right. So uh, welcome. Today's uh, news episode for the week. Uh, we've got a bunch of great stories to cover. And of course, uh, the last news episode we had, we kind of previewed or highlighted that, you know, there's going to be a lot of gun control stuff coming here very soon. Just in the last week, we've had new governors sworn in in, in, in several states. We've had new state legislatures and senates. And of course, uh, we've had the, the changing of the guard, so to speak, at the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, and so, yeah, now we're going to start to really see things get crazy. And so a lot of our stories today are, are starting to highlight some of that, some of the proposals that have been already made or will soon be made as we are expecting them. And uh, yeah, and then we get into some really interesting, I call them special interest stories uh, because they, I think they really are pretty special pretty special and pretty interesting stories. Uh, we got a report out of Chicago. Some researchers did some digging in the effect that concealed carry may have had. Uh, it, they, it, from what I read, it seemed like it was pretty pretty solid stuff. But uh, yeah, concealed carry seems has reduced crime in Chicago. So that's pretty interesting. We got some uh, interesting stuff out of Europe as far as gun ownership and interesting guns. We've got, uh, what else? Uh, I know I'm missing one, but yeah, lots of really, really great stories. And, of course, our Justified Safe stories that uh, today are, are exceptional as well, like they often are. But really, today, there are some really great stories. So looking forward to getting into that, all of that with uh, with you, Jacob, and, of course, with our listeners and viewers today live on Facebook. Uh, Ghost Tactical already commenting. Pelosi is already rolling out some new legislation, and we'll be talking about that in just a few minutes. So here we go. Today's episode, though, is brought to you by <clears> – <throat> this is called the – Top 10 Things You Probably Don't Know About Self-Defense Law by Andrew Branca. And this is a DVD that we've got uh, for sale on our site. And uh, it has great relevance to some of the things we talk about today. Uh, especially if we have a couple of don't do this <laughs> or things you should not do uh, stories in, in, in that part of the segment of the show. And uh, yeah, so this is a really great... If, if, if you haven't taken Andrew Branca's Level 1 of his law of self-defense uh, course, then the top 10 things you probably don't know about self-defense law is like a really great 
primer. It'd be like an intro to that level one course. So if you just haven't been quite willing to make that leap into that level one course, then I would encourage you to go check out this DVD. It's, it's like an hour long. I, I think it might actually be even a little bit less than an hour. So it's super easy to consume, really, really good, valuable information contained in that DVD. So you can pick one of these up today at concealedcarry.com forward slash law 10 things. And that the 10, the number 10 is a uh, numeral. Okay. So law one zero things. All right, concealedcarry.com forward slash law 10 things. And then also today's episode made possible by the live fire drill cards and log book. And uh, this you can find at concealedcarry.com forward slash LFDC. And we love the live fire drill cards book and especially that, that the entire log book, Jacob. I mean, you're a big fan. Uh, do you have one handy by chance? I don't know where mine's at right now. Um, looking... No, I, I got one of my range ba- in my range uh, bag, but yeah, essentially it's a little five by seven notebook with a variety of things in it. But probably the thing we always talk about and focus on the most, though, though it's it's a very comprehensive system. But the thing we talk about the most are the drill cards, and the drill cards are you know cards based on very industri- industry standard drills. They have the instructions to set up and run that drill, and they have a place for you to mark down your scores and times so you can see progress or improvement or the lack thereof over time. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I was, we had an instructor who we met at a, a trade show a year or something ago, and we were chatting and catching up, you know, that we've worked with this person for a while. And they told me that they use these drill cards exclusively um, for their one-on-one training sessions with clients at the range. Uh, they just every time the client comes out for a session, they pull out the, the drill cards and they check lot, you know what what the times were last time, and they they run them again. Dude, I switched the camera over to you because <laughs> it's really comical. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not happy with me right now. <laughs> this is Watson. He's like, ooh, this microphone smells good. <laughs> Can I eat it? Anyway, so yeah, um, live fire drill cards uh, in the logbook. The book is great. Uh, you know, you can go buy the book. It's going to come with a whole bunch of these uh, drill, drill cards, and uh, take it to the range. So a lot of you know, it's the new, it's the new, the new year. <clears throat> Struggling to talk all of a sudden. Uh, it's the new year, and a lot of people like to try to, you know, they they make resolutions or they try to work on some new skill or uh, talent or you know, to eliminate something from their lives or whatever it is. So, you know, I would say look forward to the rest of this year, 2019, and make the resolution right now to make yourself a better shooter. And this could be a really valuable tool to kind of track your progress and keep you kind of on a certain path uh, as you work towards being a better shooter and developing those shooting skills and taking things to the next level. So, live fire drill cards and logbook. Check it out, concealedcarry.com forward slash LFDC. So, um, with that, uh, today's episode, by the way, does not have a case of the week from Andrew Branca. Unfortunately, uh, he's, he was also kind of taking some time off, and I think they were moving uh, too as well. They were moving their house and place of business and everything. So, uh, no case of the week this week, but I, I'm expecting that we'll get that back up and going next week in episode 287. So uh, we're going to jump right into the news stories now, and uh, we got this first one <clears throat> is from the Sun Sentinel, sun-sentinel.com out of Florida. Senator Marco Rubio pushes federal red flag bill on firearms. And, uh, you know, I was expecting to see this type of legislation be proposed in, 
well, actually, I was expecting it in the House, in the in the U.S. House, from the, the now democratically controlled U.S. House. But instead, we're seeing this being introduced and actually reintroduced in the Senate by Senator Marco Rubio. And, of course, he is a senator of the state of Florida, and Florida had Parkland, and Florida, the state, also passed a red flag bill uh, last year following the incident in, at Parkland. And so, uh, anyway, it seems that Senator Rubio is very much uh, behind this. Of course, obviously, he's the sponsor. Uh, the other senator who narrowly won his election in uh, Florida is uh, the former governor, uh, Rick Scott. And he's the one that signed that red flag bill in the state of Florida into law. So, <clears throat> anyway, it's been proposed in the U.S. Senate. What are your thoughts on this, Jacob? Well, I think it's no secret that these red red flag bills uh, I'm not inherently opposed to, and in fact could be behind given the right you know level of detail, right? Given, given the right circumstances and the way they're written, I do think it makes sense that law enforcement should have uh, the ability to take firearms away from people who legitimately ha- are prone to violence and are, are currently at risk of violent acts. So. You know, at that kind of that level, it's like, okay, yeah, like like if if any of you just heard me say that and you know nothing else about red flag laws, you probably should say something like, yeah, that makes sense. The problem is generally in the details, right? In the way that it's done and the way that it has a tendency, the way these bills are generally written to strip people of due process in that in that in that effort, right? And so I'm against people losing constitutional guaranteed rights, including the the you know the right to due process uh, in these situations beyond what is absolutely inherently necessary in order to to ensure public safety. So, if 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 the bill that was passed into law in Florida is the example from which we're assuming that that Rubio and what's his bucket are are using as a as a as a as a pattern for national legislation then i have i have challenges with some of the detail i think the devil is in the details although i think at at the at the theoretic level i'm not necessarily opposed to it as a concept yes oh, let's, let's put it in perspective right so <clears throat> do we all i think even us you know, even the most extreme pro second amendment person do we want to keep, do we desire to keep guns out of the hands of bad people, people that want to hurt us? I, I no, think, of course not. Yeah, yeah I mean, we, we, we we do desire to keep guns out. Oh, of, yeah, we don't want them to have it. I'm sorry. Right. I'm, yes, I'm not clear. I understood what you meant. We, I, I think conceptually, we want to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people and criminals, right? Uh, there is no one easy way to do that. There's no easy way to keep guns out of the hands of criminals, right? We know that because gun control doesn't right. work. Uh, but we, when we start going down this path of crazy people, like truly insanely crazy people, like those that are not only – and we have to be careful there, right? Because there are crazy people, but there are crazy people that aren't necessarily dangerous. Just like there are drunks that get you know silly and happy, and there are drunks that get really angry and beat their kids, Right. And and there's and we don't always know the reason why, you know, people behave the way they behave, particularly when they're under the influence of drugs or when they go crazy. Right. But what I'm saying is when when we have somebody that's been adjudicated mentally defective, crazy, that has been shown to be a danger to themselves or or danger to others, do we have a problem with keeping guns out of those people's hands? Not one bit. 
But we have to be careful because it's so easy to lump into that category all the other mental defective or mental disorders, not necessarily mental defectiveness, but just mental disorders in general, or those that maybe say just one thing. They just, you know, have a bad day and they, they let one thing slip and somebody reads into that too much. The next thing you know, cops are showing at your door asking for your guns. Yeah. And I think it's on our schedule to do a dedicated episode, to talk more about red flag laws. Um, <laughs> but it's it's a frustrating reality. And, and like in this case, we got two people from Florida who are proposing it. I, I have no issue, by the way, with a Republican proposing a bill that we might inherently on the surface refer to as a gun control bill if it addresses everything correctly. I, I don't care who proposes the bill right. if it's written properly and correctly. So I, to some degree, I applaud someone, a, a Republican, for saying, hey, I, I think I have an idea that I think – will make America safer without removing someone's rights. And so I don't care what political party I'm associated with. I'm going to go support that. And so to that end, uh, you know, even if I think it may be mis misguided or I think, you know, some of the details are done improperly, I say props to, to anyone who, you know, stands up for what they believe in, right? Uh, but yeah, we, we got to be careful. This is not minority report, right? Like we, we right. can't, our society is not based on uh, punishing people for potential future acts, like we we don't have you know the the minority report technology unfortunately so we have to be very cautious about taking away people's rights for an act they have yet to commit right you know that's a great point i haven't thought about the movie minority report in a long time that that was a messed up movie dude i mean it was also kind of a weird movie but but like the concept you know that they were that, that the movie was about it was messed up dude <laughs> yeah yeah, and that, that's that's just it. Like we got, <laughs> that's the key point here, and that's why I, maybe that like paints a picture that gets really clear in the mind of our listener. We can't, as a society, cross a line into a world where we punish people for what they might do. Yeah, it, it, no matter how heinous or horrible that might be, it's not okay. We 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 want to take appropriate action on based on what people have done through due process. And, and that, you know, in order to ensure, you know, future safety, public safety, and that's fine. Yeah. But uh, beyond that, it's, it's minority report. It's not cool. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Good thoughts there, Jacob. Uh, and yeah, I think we've talked about the concept of red flag, red flag laws for quite some time now in the podcast. And, and I, 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 I'd like to think that we're pretty clear on what our position there is. And I'm sure that not all listeners agree with us uh, 100% on our, on our stance, but basically, like, I'm not opposed to the idea of keeping guns away from dangerous or crazy people. Actually, let's just leave it to dangerous people, okay? Because it would have to be crazy and dangerous, right? So not opposed to that. But doing so in a way that we don't end up with unintended consequences because of the way the laws might be written, which we have seen in a few states, some of these laws that they have provisions that are just, you know, they're kind of scary. And and the big one there is that there must be due process per the Constitution, and you know, a person has to have the opportunity for due process uh, to have rights removed. Uh, so that's the big challenge here. We all we all get it. We we understand it. Um, we'll see how this develops in the U.S. Senate. Uh, obviously, if it if it's able to get passed, it will have probably no problem whatsoever uh, getting through the House. And uh, you know, I suspect President Trump would sign it into law. I suspect that. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, I think this is legitimately, you know, has has potential of being a being a reality. In fact, it might be the first thing in a very long time uh, that we've seen get through a federal Congress that has anything to do with guns. Yeah. Yep. All right. Now, interestingly enough, uh, there and there was a little mention in here about, um, or maybe there's another story, but I was thinking about how. Uh, oh, that is in the in the upcoming story right here. House lawmakers prepare rollout of gun control proposal. And, of course, we're expecting this. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, now the Speaker of the House, again. And uh, instantly, you know, there's a lot of talk about them proposing quite a bit of anti-gun legislation. Where that'll go, that remains to be seen. Probably a big, you know, non-fat chance. You know, not no chance in heck of getting things, you know, completely passed through the House, through the Senate, and signed into law by President Trump, if anything were to get passed, I doubt there would be the margins they would need if, if they were going to avoid some sort of veto from Trump. And who knows exactly where Trump stands on some of these things. He, he says he's pro-Second Amendment. At the same time, we just saw in the last couple of weeks the ATF change regulation as it relates to bump stocks, Right. And of course, there's a lot going on behind, you know, on, on that issue as well. There's there's all kinds of uh, federal lawsuits on, on that already in the works. So, uh, it, you know, it's kind of interesting. Like, you wonder where where exactly do we stand politically in this country right now as it relates to the Second Amendment? Because you'd like to think that, uh, you know, we just shared a story of a Republican senator, and typically the Republicans. Uh, their platform in most cases is pro second amendment and you got a Republican proposing something that might be viewed by many as an anti-gun bill. And you have a president that just allowed the ATF to roll out these anti bump stock regulations. So I don't know. Uh, obviously some of the things that the house are looking at uh, red, red flag bills. That's definitely on the list. Uh, another assault weapons ban potentially, Right. Yeah, but the big one here is universal background checks for and all firearms. That, fire that is that is the big thing. Yes, that that they are highlighting. So we have that here in Colorado, Jacob. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and, and they do they do say something like with some exceptions for hunting and family, and we we have family related exemptions here here in Colorado. Yeah. And I I don't have a current count, but guys, but it's probably between twelve and it's very unJacoby of me to not have like the list like memorized, but. It's somewhere between probably like 12 and 18 states that have a universal background check law in place. And for anyone who's not clear, you know, the 15-second definition here, we're talking about a law that would prevent the private transfer of a firearm without a background check. So currently, there's no federal law that prohibits me and Riley from meeting in a parking lot and exchanging guns and cash. Uh, because neither of us are engaged in the business of doing so, we don't require a license from the ATF to do that, and there, no background check is required. Uh, but a universal background check uh, legislation, uh, which, like as mentioned, is in place in a handful of states, would would eliminate that as a possibility. It would say no. All transactions, uh, all transfers of firearms require a background check. Now, on the surface, that seems you know fine and dandy. My big, I have two big issues here. One is it creates uh, red tape and cost. It creates more barrier to getting guns. That's a problem. My second big issue with universal background checks it, it, is that it is the re- required prerequisite to have in place before you can create gun registration. So I'm not saying that you know this person or that person wants gun registration. Though we could we could come up with a list. What I am saying is that 
in order to even propose gun registration, you must first have universal background check laws in place. It's the one has to happen before the other. And then my third big issue with universal background check laws is that there's no data, research, even arbitrary, even a single instance that I, anyone has ever provided to me as an example where I'm aware the universal background check law has done anything to stem violence. It's, it's, just, it's just not helpful. It doesn't do anything good. Right. Yep. Uh, that's, that's what we see uh, all the time. Uh, you know, you look at the, the house, of course, and we're going to cover a story here. Uh, the next, in fact, is that the next one? Um, no, not quite, but, uh, there, or maybe I cut that. Oh, let's see. Where did that story go? That's, oh, yeah, it's coming up. So actually I'll jump to that story now because it, there's some correlation here. Uh, sensing an opening, Virginia governor revives push for gun control. So this, according to the Washington Post, you have still somewhat new uh, Virginia governor, Ralph Northam, uh, Democrat, of course. Uh, he is proposing a raft of gun control measures, it says, in the legislative session that starts next week. Uh, actually, that is referring to this week because this is a story from just you know last week. And so this week, their legislation set, legislative session is, is starting like it is in a lot of states. And Governor Northam is making it clear he wants an aggressive push to revive gun control. And, uh, you know, a couple of these things, it's pretty standard language. Red flag laws, uh, p- potential of, uh, uh, you know, looking at an assault weapons ban, oh, universal background checks. But uh, here's one that really jumped out at me, and it is a revival of Virginia's one handgun a month law. And I remember when they had this years ago, and it had been in effect for nearly 20 years when it was repealed in 2012. So, yeah, let's bring back this you can only buy one handgun a month idea. And the, uh, re- the reason behind this it says, and quoting from the governor's office, quote, prevent people from stockpiling firearms and transporting them for sale in other states, end quote. Since yeah, I'm I sure that happens all the time. Yeah, I, I would love to see. And maybe they have it, by the way. Like I, I always say these things with a little bit of, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but maybe they can show me this. But I would like to see the data. I'd like to see the research. I'd like to see the report. I'd like to see the specific instances where since 2012, uh, people have been now stockpiling firearms and transporting them for sale in other states because they can, because they can now buy more than one gun a month. If you're in the business of selling guns, you get a, a license from the ATF and you can buy as many freaking guns as you want. Like, who cares what the law is, right? Like, you're, you're not subject to this one gun a month law. If you are not in the business of selling guns and you're stockpiling guns and transporting them to sell other states, you're already breaking a law. It's already a crime. Like you can go to jail now. So I'm not clear on why we need an additional law that will do nothing more than punish law-abiding gun owners in order to make it something illegal that is already illegal and punishable. Yep. (laughs) That's so true. Now, here's a quote from uh, Governor Northam. We lose too many Virginians each year to senseless gun violence, and it is time we take meaningful steps to protect the health and safety of our citizens. Yeah, I, this is the kind of crap I hate. It's <laughs> it's feeding on ignorance, or it is ignorance. Either, either, listen, let me be very, very clear. Governor Northam, either you are ignorant, you are completely clueless, and someone is feeding you a bunch of bull crap, which causes you to believe that these proposals will actually stem violence and save lives, 
or you yourself are in fact in form and you're, you are feeding the bull crap to the public suggesting that these things would actually stem violence and, and prevent death. Right. Show me an example of Virginia where someone would have had their guns taken away in an extreme risk protective order, but they didn't, and then they proceeded to you know cause gun violence deaths. Uh, show me an example where a universal background check would have stopped somebody from getting a gun, and sh- and show me some example where someone out there is stockpiling firearms and transporting them for sale in other states. And you didn't arrest them when you should have, but now, now that you have this new law, that 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 would do it. This is all bullcrap. Yeah. Well, and my answer to that is is just look at California that has a similar. Uh, they have that same handgun, you know, one handgun per thirty day limit thing, right? You can buy twelve per year if you're if you're you know right on top of it. Every thirty days, you go in and buy another handgun in California. And. That's been in place for for a little while now, I think, in in California. But regardless, like Virginia, the Virginia governor is talking about let's do these additional gun control things, common sense gun uh, legislation, so we can help prevent gun violence. But you go look at all the, you know, look at the timeline of when things were passed in California, and there is, you know, and, and then go look if there's any sort of correlation whatsoever with crime in California. And and there's zero correlation whatsoever. In fact, as their gun laws have gotten stricter, their crime has gone up. And I'm not saying that's related necessarily, but I, I mean, there's definitely, you know, a, there's a valid point to be made there. And many people do think that is a, a reason why the crime's going up. Uh, it's just, it hasn't been validated by research, like in the story that is coming up here from Chicago, which is really, really, really interesting. Uh, so, it's it's just interesting, you know. We, we've 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 hit on this time and time and time again. Uh, the reason for this is for this legislation is we, we got to make things safer, but we know darn well that's probably not going to be the case. It's really yeah, just it's, an attack on law-abiding citizens, like you just mentioned. Yeah, guys, if if you get into a conversation with somebody, the the correct thing is to say, you know, they support something like this. Correct thing to say is why do you why do you support that? Oh, because blah blah bullcrap. Okay, well, why do you feel that's true? And that this is where rubber hits the road when people don't act are incapable of actually answering that question. They they may give a response to which your response is probably something along the lines of that's not true, <laughs> right? right? But people have been led to believe, oh, I support universal background checks. Why? Oh, because everybody gets a gunshot to go under a background check. Why? Oh, because then bad guys won't be able to get guns. Well, you, are you aware? Like, can you can you name a bad guy who you think you know was able to get a gun that they wouldn't have got passed a background check? Oh yeah, like what all the what about all the mass shooters? All of them passed background checks and got guns, or they stole them from someone who did. So, like you know, like I, I when you start to have these conversations with people and you just simply ask, well, why do you feel that way? You really quickly, after one or two times of repeating that question, get down to just a false statement that you can mm-hmm. quickly say, feel that's good not legislation. true. Yeah, it's all about I want to feel good, and for some reason we think if we do these laws that we're going to have a positive effect. So uh, clearly it hasn't worked in places like I'm, – I'm kind of jumping around now a little bit, Jacob, because I'm going to go ahead and move right to this uh, Chicago story because it just makes sense we talk about it now. Uh, the NRA ILA reports uh, on a study – where researchers credit the right to carry law with reduction in Chicago property crimes. In July 2013, the Illinois legislature overrode the veto veto of then-Governor Patrick Quinn 
to eliminate the state's status as the last holdout in refusing to issue concealed carry permits. In moving from a no-issue to shall-issue, law-abiding citizens of the land of Lincoln were finally able to enjoy the Second Amendment rights. Right, so that's the history. You probably already knew that, some of you, but some of you may not. Um, recently, two researchers disproved some of Mayor Rahm Emanuel's thoughts that if we made guns more prevalent, if we allowed more people to carry guns on them and carry concealed, that it would that crime would go up. He actually said that. Researchers have disproved that uh, in a couple of areas. Let's let's talk about what those are. Uh, <clears throat> The researcher's name, actually, I'm not going to bother giving names because I can't pronounce them, <laughs> but they were from Ball State University and Villanova University. This is this is publishing in Applied Economics Letters. They looked at crime data from 2006 to 2015, and they, they compared Chicago and Philadelphia because they're two similar, it says they're two similar and uh, cities in population density, demographic characteristics, and property crime levels. And because Pennsylvania is also a shall-issue state, so they kind of use Pennsylvania as a control because Pennsylvania had concealed carry during that time period, and Chicago didn't throughout that whole time period. And then the researchers, their goal was to look at what happened after, uh, you know, the the, the uh, Illinois became a shall-issue state, right? So what they found is that. And there's a lot of fancy words in here, regression analysis and zero inflated negative binomial regression, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> what they found is that after the implement implementation of the shall issue law in Chicago, property crimes decreased. Wow. Like, you know, we're always talking about and, and knocking on Chicago, right? Because of how bad crime there is, violent crime in particular. And, and it is it is kind of bad, but actually it's not the worst place for violent crime in the U.S. There, there are actually cities that are worse. Uh, like St. Louis, I think, is ahead of Chicago, for instance. I think Houston might even be, I can't remember for sure, don't quote me on that. But there's a couple of cities that are actually worse than Chicago. But we hear about things in Chicago all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, try Baltimore. Baltimore is like the most dangerous metro in America. Right. But but this is suggesting that actually there there's positive signs in Chicago because potentially of concealed carry. Yeah. And it's very isolated to property crimes. And so all of us would love for this right. headline to read something like, you know, violent crimes, you know, have decreased because of concealed carry. And, and either they didn't test for that or they weren't attempting to prove that or that's just not true based on their research. But irregardless, what, what is very clear based on their research is that uh, people carrying around guns legally uh, decreases property crime, which makes total sense. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I look at concealed carry, for instance, and like concealed carry doesn't really directly affect um you know, property crime as far as like, I, I wouldn't think of it in that way. You know, I would think concealed carry would, would maybe affect things outside the home more as opposed to like on property. But, uh, I don't know that there, and there was a quote here too, that, uh, from the researchers and they said this about it. The authors offered several potential ex explanations for Chicago's decrease in property crime, not least of which is that concealed carry quote, may influence the opportunity cost for com committing crimes as criminals may weigh gains against higher risk with the possibility of a victim carrying a firearm, end quote. And, and so kind of, you know, it seems like, yeah, they were talking about property crimes here, but that, that quote right there doesn't necessarily 
address property crimes is the way I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm seeing a little bit of a disconnect between we're talking about property crimes, but then maybe are we not? I don't know. I'm not sure how to read some of the, some of the stuff coming out of this story. Yeah. I'd have to go read the research and clearly I haven't. Yeah. Me, I, me I, either, but I think the takeaway I'll dive in. Yeah, for most of us, it's just the kind of the obvious surface level um, appeal here that you know when 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 criminals are afraid that people might own guns, they're less likely to commit crimes, and that just seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah, that's what. Yeah, so I, it would be interesting if these guys, if they have any data on violent crime, like why only look at property crime? I don't know. So, uh, but either way, that's that's a really cool and positive thing to see coming out of a place like Chicago where it's getting such a bad rap all the time. And it really kind of goes in the face of, uh, of of some of the logic like we were just talking about as far as like, let's, let's compare LA, for instance, and Chicago to, you know, very large cities, very different, you know, in terms of there's different culture and different environments and perhaps, I mean, there, there are different demographics between Chicago and LA for sure. But, but you look at a place like LA where it's so difficult to get a gun and carry a gun in particular, concealed carry is basically non-existent in a place like LA, but now something that's possible in a place like Chicago and look at how many stories are coming out of Chicago, Jacob, of, of citizens defending themselves. It, I, I, it's getting more and more frequent where almost on a weekly basis on the podcast, at least one of our justified safe stories is out of Chicago, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, we have one today. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. So anyway, good stuff there. All right, moving on. OrlandoWeekly.com, bill to allow guns on Florida colleges and universities filed again. They've tried to do this in the past. Ooh, yeah, I don't know that this one requires a whole lot of conversation other than this seems to be a repeat uh, thing in Florida. Every year they give this a shot, and it seems to not go very well. Uh, maybe this year will be the year that it gets through. But, uh, yeah, we're, you and I are proponents of campus carry. It seems to be pretty proven. I, I have two really solid uh, articles I put a lot of time and energy into on our website about this. But one that I really love is I, I think the, the title of the article is something like um, I dare faculty members to a- analyze this without bias or something. And I present all this data. I, I basically attempted to determine how many semesters have been completed on a college campus in America by someone with a concealed carry permit. And then I compared that to the number of incidents where someone with a concealed carry permit on a college campus has committed a violent crime with that gun. And uh, I really kind of just give you the punchline. The short of it is that probably about a half a million semesters have been completed by concealed carriers on this in this country and zero incidents ever of any of them ever committing any sort of violent crime with that gun. So the, 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 the odds of it happening are zero up till now because it's never happened uh, despite, you know, nearly half a million semesters completed. So wow. I don't know if it'll happen in Florida, but it should. I mean, I, I'm yeah. a huge proponent. Yeah. They've had, they've had tr- trouble uh, getting that passed in years past. I think that's been proposed every year for the last several years and uh, it just, it, it dies whether it's in committee or I don't know if it's actually ever made it to a vote. Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. I don't recall, but uh, it, it's always a controversial thing, right? Uh, you're going to get big time, a lot of, folks going against legislation like this from higher education or from just education in general, uh, you'll, you'll get it's a, this is definitely a very controversial type of legislation, even though logic shows and data shows you can look at States like Utah and Colorado. Now Colorado's allowed campus carry for 
more than a decade. And you know, yeah, coming up on 16 years. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you have a number of states and now t- uh, Texas now has campus carry Kansas, Idaho, Idaho Wyoming, uh, you know, so there are college students all over the place now carrying guns on campus and we're not seeing it turn into wild, wild west. Like some of these, you know, uh, or not proponents, but uh, opponents of that type of legislation, you know, would, would, would suggest. Yeah, one of the challenges of this kind of legislation is just that the opponents are very influential and and yes. well connected and well funded. So when you when you start talking about campus carry, you're going to battle with some just very large, powerful institutions. You know, the world of academia is is well connected, greatly affects you know, ac- ac- economics and in the area where they are. Um, they appear to be very intelligent. They're associated. They're associated with large associations and organizations and national unions of whatever. And and so it, it's just it's an uphill battle. Like you're yeah. you're dealing with some very powerful people. For sure. Hey, by the way, Doyle here has a really interesting comment. He said, "If you're carrying 24 seven 365, you're most likely to encounter crime at home based on the amount of time you spend at home." And uh, that's actually a really valid point. So increase of concealed carry permits in a place like Chicago. And more people are carrying a gun on a daily basis, meaning they're probably carrying it in more places, including at home. And uh, because it's it's a lifestyle, you you and I know that, Jacob. And uh, that's that's a really valid point. Thanks for bringing that up, Doyle. Appreciate that. So we'll see what happens with that legislation in Florida. All right, <clears throat> on to this is a really intriguing story out of the Wall Street Journal. Now, for those of you reviewing the uh, show notes, and today's show notes should be able to you should be able to find them at concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 285. And by the way, whenever I give those those links, they don't actually go live, Facebook folks, until the episode is actually published in the podcast feed. Uh, but uh, so if you're looking at the show notes, this story's from Wall Street Journal, which I was able to get this one to come up on my uh, computer. But when I tried to view this story earlier on my phone or iPad, it, it was behind a paywall. And it was like, you got to subscribe to Wall Street Journal to see so I'm just giving you all a heads up, all right? So if you're not able to see the story, I'm sorry. You might try a computer if you're on your mobile device. Try a computer because I was able to, to get through it just fine. I cannot view the story. Okay, so I'll, I'll have to take the, a little more of the lead here. Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com reports gun use surges in Europe where firearms are rare. And then basically it goes into, and it's, it's, it's sort of like it's telling this, you know, all these individual people's stories, right? And you got, it, mostly it's focused on places like Germany, France, and Belgium. And those are three, three states where gun ownership is strongly and strictly controlled. Like it's even easier to purchase a gun and have a gun uh, in Italy than it is in Germany or France, interestingly enough. But uh, so... What, what we're seeing, basically the gist of the story, it's a pretty lengthy story, is that we are seeing gun use and gun ownership increasing dramatically in a lot of these European countries in recent years. Uh, and it, it tries to go into a number of reasons why that might be, but it, there, is, there does seem to be a correlation, Jacob, between terrorist-type attacks or very, very violent crimes that occurred with guns in some of those countries, and then those incidents fall, being followed shortly thereafter by a sudden increase in application for permits uh, just to go by. You know, in some, some of these cases, these people can only get a permit to have a gun 
that sometimes will be stored at the gun range that they can only go shoot at the gun range and they can only be the they can be the only one to shoot that gun because you can only shoot a gun that you have a permit that matches the serial number. <laughs> Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I want. I'm glad you clarified that because that was like the only insight I had. Given I can't really read the news story, but yeah, when you see the words "gun permit" referring to European countries, or New York, <laughs> right. or Massachusetts, or Maryland, it's it, we're in those cases we're talking about not the ability to carry around a gun, but you know to own a gun under very specific limitations. Yeah. It, it, so you have to understand uh, for, for some of these European countries, like there's all these different classes of licenses. This is this is you, you, people want to know why we're so hesitant to allow any sort of registration and permitting and all this stuff to happen here in the U.S. It's because of what we see happen in Europe, where you end up with like five different classes of licenses, and one class just allows you to have a gun, and it can only be a rifle or a shotgun, and has to be stored at the range. And then you, then you, and if you have that for like a certain period of time, sometimes it really depends on. There's so many different rules and regulations from country to country, but I'm just giving you some of the anecdotal stuff that I that I've learned through the years. That after you have that kind of permit for a time, then you can apply for the next level of permit, which might allow you to have a handgun, but it can only be certain kind of handgun handguns, and it can only be in certain calibers, right? And then that's going to have to be stored at the range too. And then in some countries, they might have permits where you can actually own that gun and have it outside of the gun range, but it can only be kept at home and it has to be locked up and it has to be unloaded like all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you can only transport it unloaded to the range where you're allowed to shoot it. Like that's the only place you can shoot it. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's just a disaster. You know I mean? And I'd say the only good thing that comes from this is we get good articles with data like this because the government knows every single person who owns a gun um, gets real easy to be able to measure whether or not gun ownership is increasing. <laughs> yeah, 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 true. So my po- whole point here is what we're seeing is even in some of these countries where gun ownership and permitting and licensing and all that is already so strict and even though it maybe doesn't necessarily directly uh, – fix like you know the the reason the desire why the person was motivated to go and buy the gun in the first place such as it talks about after uh the the uh shooting uh in uh, munich right uh, a couple years ago 18 year old uh, kid he bought a gun illegally somehow off of the dark web and then he killed nine people in munich with a with a rifle or with a gun okay so immediately following that event there was a sudden like rise in people reg- you know applying to purchase a gun in Germany even though they probably can't have that gun with them or they can't or there there's like zero chance of them being able to have that gun in such a way that they'd be able to defend themselves against a, another similar attack it's still driving that motivating factor in within them to go ahead and go get a gun for the, like the first time ever Right, so it's it's just really it's just a really interesting piece as far as this is concerned. It's just showing how Europeans now are starting to get more and more interested in self defense and gun ownership, where they kind of I think the culture, you know, really kind of took a, a nosedive as far as towards the, their attitude towards guns for a number of decades. Even, um, well, have you seen what's going on in Brazil? I'm wearing my Brazil sweatshirt. <laughs> yeah, look at that. So Brazil is uh, coming out of a presidential race, and oh, I don't know if the election's finalized or not. I think it is. Yeah, it I is. think it's now done. Yeah, the the president was uh, sworn in or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. A few so weeks that deal ago. is done. So so the new president, who by the way is not affiliated with a party, <laughs> and couldn't afford a lot of advertising, like his entire campaign was social media with no you know major media at all. He's now the new president, 
And he is a very strong advocate for gun ownership. He's pushing really hard. And um, by the nature of their political system, almost certainly Brazilians will probably be able to own guns as, as uh, you know, normal citizens very soon. So, so yeah, we are seeing almost like this rebound, right, internationally. Yeah, that's that's a great insight. And I've been following – for the first time ever, I've been following uh, Brazilian politics <laughs> for like the last couple of months since that guy was you know running for president because he's – Pro gun, and he's saying let's let's bring that let's bring this back to the people. Uh, you know, Brazil has this so-called strict gun control, right, Jacob? But they're one of the worst countries for gun-related crime, which yeah, is crazy it's to not think. Not a safe place. Yeah, I mean, were you robbed while you uh, lived there? Twice. Yeah. <laughs> well, robbed's clarified. I was attempt. I lived through two attempted robberies. Sure, sure. <laughs> I didn't have much. Of you value. probably didn't have anything on you. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, Brazil is a. It's, it's it's crazy to think. You know, it's a great case study though, as far as have very strict gun control, where your average Joe citizen that is law abiding basically is you know can't have a gun, and uh, yet gun con- gun crime there is so 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 high. So that I thought that was really intriguing when that president's like at the time president elect or president uh, candidate was like, hey, like I I believe people should have guns and the right to defend themselves. Anyway, so interesting correlations there for sure. So there was a quote here I just wanted to share from this story from uh, it was somebody involved with some European pro-gun organization. I thought I had it here. But basically, I'll just summarize the quote. But basically, they were kind of given their reason why they think people are or what they think is going on with this. And they were just saying, look, people are getting interested in guns and they're getting interested in self-defense because they see these really bad things happening. And I, I think that's really, really, really cool to see that they, these folks are uh, they're, that they're starting to develop that interest because the concepts of self-defense like we know them here in the U.S. are very unique compared to the, to the rest of the world. There was also a gun range owner quoted in this article who said that uh, with each terror attack, the legislation gets stricter. But for the black market, everything stays the same. I think that sums it up pretty, pretty well. Let's go on now to a story uh, from Washington Times. Uh, Jacob, you can take the lead on this if you'd like, because uh, you are you live most closely to this special place in Colorado. Oh, 10 minutes. Known as yeah. Boulder. Yeah, I'm very close to Boulder. Uh, and I like Boulder, by the way, for all you people who, are, who think that Boulder's just a bunch of crazy hippies, which it kind of is. But I, but Boulder's <laughs> a fun city, I, and, I, and we like going to Boulder. Uh, so, so long story short, last year, Boulder, the city uh, passed a city ordinance that says that uh, in, in order to own a what they determined to be an assault weapon, um, which basically most semi-automatic rifles are included, you need to register it. You need to get a certificate um, from Boulder police before December 31st, 2018, right? So nine or 10 days ago, uh, that had to be done. And if you did not do so uh, after, you know, as of December 31st, then you're in violation of this law by by even possessing this gun. So it's not about the acquisition of the gun. It's about the possession of the gun uh, being illegal unless you had registered it prior to that date. And um, the long story short, based on the Washington Times article, is that no one is complying. Uh, in total, as of December 31st, 342 rifles had been registered uh, with the Boulder police. Now, there is a pending lawsuit, and so maybe you know a lot of people could just be waiting to see how that lawsuit comes out because it it's very well possible that uh, this, this, this ordinance might be 
shot down that it, they it might be rejected and and killed because of the the pending lawsuit against it calling it unconstitutional uh, but in the meanwhile they're still rolling out and trying to enforce this law and 342 is not a lot uh, in fact the author of this article says something along the lines of you know most people own more than one so if it's 342 mm-hmm. guns that have been registered, you know that could have come from 105 gun owners, uh, or something like that. But I promise you, there's a lot more than than 342 people in Boulder that own AR-15s, um, despite the um, uh, the appearance or impression that Boulder is a bunch of hippies. I can tell you that Boulder's full of gun owners. Uh, it, it really is, and Boulder County is is really full of gun owners. There's a lot more uh, there than you think. And that's the nature of Colorado. Colorado is a funny state where we're we're, you know, a cowboy state. We're a western state. We're a frontier state. We're a mountain hunting, fishing state, full of liberals lately. So, uh, it, it's just kind of a, a weird, you know, hoshpodge. And Boulder is a perfect example of that. Uh, but there are plenty of gun owners there. So, yeah. Long story short, uh, people are not complying, and the lawsuit that's pending may or may not make the whole thing irrelevant anyway. Yeah. You know, there's a. A quote here, actually, a little bit of information here about John Caldera, who uh, I've been following for a number of years. Uh, he's the president of Independence Institute. He's a very much freedom-loving American, uh, and I got introduced to him because I like to listen to a lot of radio and, and, and podcasts and stuff. That's why we started this podcast, because I, I like podcasts and like talk radio and stuff. And John Caldera, he's been on on local radio here for years and years and years, and just a very, very smart guy where it comes to... Uh, free freedom principles uh he has openly refused to comply and he's really been sort of leading the charge in that regard as far as he's one of the first people that is has been willing to openly come out and say i will not comply with this new law and i commend him for his uh his courage to do that you know because if if people, I mean, people know who John Caldera is in Boulder, and they know, and people in Colorado know who he is. Like these people, got to know now that he's he has like because he's basically said so. He has guns that require registry with Boulder PD, but he is not going in to do it. So like they could just show up just about any time <laughs> to his house. You would think. And say, hey, dude, like, hand him over, you know? Uh, but interestingly enough, the Boulder uh, city attorney has made it pretty clear that they are not going to be going around door to door and asking people if they violated the law. Now, the interesting thing with, with Mr. Caldera is that he's already stated basically that he's violated the law, but I, I don't see them showing up at his doorstep. Now, there is an a- active, ongoing lawsuit uh, from. Uh, what's the organization? Mountain? No, it's, it's got Mountain in the name. Mountain well, States Legal forgot. Foundation. Mountain States yeah, Legal Foundation uh, has fa- filed a federal lawsuit against the city. Uh, say, I mean, obviously, their their whole case is that this registry law, which they say is a is non registration because they don't keep any records, but uh, that you know, Mountain States Legal Foundation is going after them on this and trying to get this thing uh, uh, ter- overturned. Uh, but it's pretty fascinating. There, there's folks handing out stickers, <laughs> these bright yellow stickers that say we will not comply. And folks are putting them on their cars and, and on their guitar cases, I guess, in some cases, uh, you know, making it very clear that they're not going to go along with this, with this law. So it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out because they're really kind of, I think, calling the city's bluff on this, saying we are willing to bet that you will not 
prosecute, that you will not come after us. So we will not comply. Mm. Time will tell. <laughs> Very intriguing. All righty, <clears throat> moving on. Talking doctors now and the exam rooms. This is a really interesting thing to talk about, Jacob, because, I, you know, the, I'm torn on some of these things, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. You want me to set the stage a little bit sure. here? Fire away. Then you can get into your, your thoughts. So roughly speaking, the idea here is uh, physicians, um, as, as an organization, generally speaking, feel a pretty strong obligation to watch out for and advocate uh, you know, health, healthy living. Um, and if they have a, imagine, you, you know, you have a patient in your exam room, you're a doctor and this patient comes in and confides in you that they, um, suffer from some you know, mental issues and depression and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And sometimes they have violent tendencies even, you know, it could be whatever, right. They, you drop your own scenario in your mind. It really doesn't matter. But they 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 say something to you as a doctor that makes you a little bit concerned about their potential for violence. Um, are you going to bring up whether or not they have access to a gun? And should you bring up whether or not they have access to a gun? Well, I think this article, you know, is kind of it's from uh, the American Medical Association, and they're saying, okay, well, if you feel compelled, and I think that roughly they basically think that it's you should as a doctor, if you think that there's potential for for violence that or or suicide for that matter, that you probably should um, bring it up. But they're saying, well, how how do you do it? I mean, can you imagine being a doctor sitting in an exam room, You're like, oh, that that's really sad to hear. Now, do you have any guns? You know, that, that just, that's going to be a tough topic to, to breach. And so what I gather is that they're basically, they've put together um, some assets, some, some training, some information to help doctors um, you know, bring up this kind of a topic, discuss it, know how, what kind of questions to ask, under what circumstances to ask them uh, in a way that would be appropriate and uh, less conf- confrontational. Now, what, but at the at the higher level, as far as well, is should this be allowed or not? That's 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 all kind of all just assumed as a, as a reality, you know, in, in this article. Yeah, yeah. So the AMA, the American Medical Association, uh, is not very pro gun at all. Just so you know, because I've seen other things that they have jumped on the band bandwagon with that they've promoted. That, in my opinion, makes it pretty clear. I mean, in fact, they've declared firearm related violence a public health crisis. That's not very mm, positive sounding language, <laughs> you know. Or accurate, but whatever. Right, right. Any, anytime you call something a crisis, a health crisis, that's that's language that's intended to get people upset about what's going on there and, and thus more motivated to do something about it. And by do something about it, let's let's control, let's let's limit the guns, right? That's usually where that leads. But here's the thing. So they have this basically this training course. It's an educational module that's free for physicians to take, and it's called the Physician's Role in Promoting Firearm Safety. So here's the thing. This is where where my thoughts go on this and kind of where I get a little bit torn a little bit because, you know, I'll tell you what. Recently I went to the doctor, and it was a new doctor for me, and, you know, as is, is the norm, when you go to the doctor for the first time, they have you fill out a whole bunch of stuff, including like a, usually a questionnaire of some sort, Right. You know, give us your your medical history, your family's medical history, you know, who in your family is has had heart disease and all this stuff, right? <clears throat> well, on that questionnaire was a question about whether I own and have any guns in the home or not. <laughs> and I know I'm not alone in, in experiencing this. 
And I, I just left it blank <laughs> because I, I like, I don't, why should you know? Why should you care? was kind of my thought process at the time. Right. And to be honest with you, they didn't, they didn't even ask about it. They didn't go like, Oh, by the way, you, you didn't completely fill this out. So I don't even know if they even noticed or cared themselves. Right. They may not even be looking that closely or tracking that, that data point that closely. I have no idea. Doctor certainly didn't ask me about it. That was a relief because I didn't want to ask, answer their question. But then I got thinking about it, about it after I was reading this article, Jacob. And I was thinking, you know, if we are responsible gun owners and we want to encourage responsible gun ownership and use ourselves, and we, we should do that through educating, right? We should, we should educate our children. We should educate our friends, our neighbors, our other family members. We should take them to the range and teach them things in a positive way. Hey, you know, this is a gun. This is how you shoot the gun. This is how you have fun with a gun. You know, like, like guns are awesome. They are amazing. They are fun. They are tools. They are valuable. They are necessary to our free society. And we should be standing up for that. And we should also be role models for teaching firearm safety. So if I truly believe in encouraging and educating on firearm safety, don't I want, like, why would I have a problem with anybody teaching or talking about in a responsible and in a positive way about firearm safety, like encouraging it? And I'm thinking, like, could, could we embrace doctors and should we as a firearm community embrace medical professionals and say, look, let's, let's do encourage firearm safety and let's re- encourage responsible ownership, but let's do it in a non-political, non-threatening, meaning non, you know, anti-gun sort of way. What do you think? I, I think that this is more about the how than the what, you know, yeah. um, I, I remember when we got a new pediatrician, when we moved here to Colorado, we got a new pediatrician. We took the kids to the doctor the first time. And uh, one of the questions the doctor asked us directly was, if you have firearms in the home, are they stored securely? And they're really easy to just say yes. And you might have no guns and still be say just yes to that. Right. Sure. Um, and that, that pediatrician's only concern was if there are guns, are they stored securely? And I don't know what he would have said if I'd said, nope. You know, I don't know if you would have been like, oh, well, in that case, here's a brochure. Like, I have no idea, right? Um, But I answered the question. Like, I got no problem saying yes. Now, I'm going to throw up here uh, on the screen. uh, Chad says, and Chad Enos from uh, Caltech, you're depressed, suicidal, have violent tendencies. What do firearms have anything to do with it? Should doctors report that a patient has access to a hammer, fuel, a vehicle, knives, fire, a cliff, a bridge, et cetera, et cetera? The medical field needs to stick to medicine. Now, Chad, dude, like I, I'm with you there, buddy. Like, and that's the thing. Like that, that's where I, I think, if there's some sort of reporting requirement, then I am absolutely against doctors uh, asking these kind of questions, right? Like, and, and that's something that I think is it in Obamacare, or or they were trying to get it in Obamacare. I don't remember exactly. I think they were trying to get something like that in Obamacare where they were, doctors were going to be basically required to report on things like this. And I don't think that it made it through. Well, here's here's my other two cents. I think we, we forget that there's a lot to do here with context. And let me mm-hmm. clarify what I, what I mean by that. Yeah. If I go to a psychologist or a, 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 I don't know what's the right word, psychologist, right? If I feel that I'm depressed and I need mental help, so I go to a doctor who's licensed – to practice mental health, right? They, I sit on a couch and I just, you know, in, in patient, you know, per, you know, whatever confidentiality, I, I talk about my, my great concerns about myself and my issues. 
And in that context, the doctor says something like, well, do you feel like you might commit suicide? And I say, yeah, I think I might. And they say, well, um, you know, the, I, I, I think that you guys understand that context is different than I go in for my annual checkup. And in the course of my physical, they say, now, do you own any guns? That's completely different. Now, so I, I'm with you, Riley. I think any sort of mandatory reporting is ridiculous and unacceptable. Um, I think that there, there's a certain, you know, the patient-client, uh, patient-doctor confidentiality must continue to exist and be enforced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think that context does matter here. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree for sure. Now, there's an interesting – we talked a little bit ago earlier in the episode about red flag laws, right? And there are some states that – are looking at or have, I think, oh, I'm trying to remember. I feel like there was a state that actually included something like this in their red flag law where a, a medical professional can report uh, that, you know, that someone is having some sort of health, mental health crisis or something. Maybe, maybe that one was being talked about and didn't get passed. I just remember something about that. You know how some of these red flag laws, you know, mean that a family member, a coworker, a police officer, or whatever, or like the there's a pool of people that can be included in those that can report someone, uh, you know, on one of these red flag law type, you know, situations, right? And that that's where this could get really dicey. Is if medical professionals, I mean, like on one hand, I want people to get help, right? You know what I mean? But at the same time, like we still have to protect other people's rights and due process and all that too. So just once again, I'm just, I just realized that in this one episode, we kind of have this other loop back and tie into something we talked about earlier. And that could, that could come up in, in, in that picture as well. Yeah. And, and if I, as a patient, uh, you know, trust in my medical professional and I, and I tell them certain things about myself, I should expect that that's, that's protected by, right. you know, by law that, that they are not going to turn around and be able to, to tell other people or report that to a, a court or who knows what other what kind of bull crap. So I think that we, have, I really believe in that confidentiality that exists both by ethical and legal standards and anything that jeopardizes that I, I think is, is not cool. So I, I guess if I, if someone really asked me to summarize this really short, I'd say something like, listen, I don't think it's okay to legislate uh, or to require that you know medical professionals ask people questions about guns. But I also don't yeah. think that it's okay to legislate or pro- uh, in a way that prohibits them from asking about guns. You know, it's capitalism. If, if doctors start asking me things I don't want to answer, I can go get a different doctor. Uh, and and if and, and, and but and, and within context, there might be some situations, like I said, based on that context where it's appropriate for them to ask those questions. Not in a "I got you, I'm going to go report you" kind of way, but just in a way that, as a medical professional, you've hired me to yeah. help you through something, and this might be part of the context required for me to help you. Right on, dude. Interesting things to consider there. Like I said, I I, I kind of feel like if I once again, if I truly feel like I believe in responsible gun ownership and teaching safety, like I shouldn't ever have an issue with somebody trying to help other people be safe. But I think where we get a little bit tripped up or where we get a little bit concerned, uh, and, and I think rightfully so, is is where someone is you know that doesn't really understand the thing they're talking about. It's like a, a doctor that doesn't understand guns and gun safety like they just are given some talking points like they probably should not be teaching people about gun safety right like they should at least know something would be kind of where i think i feel anyway all right we got to move right along so well i just wanted to, i think this was a really good comment from chad i was going to read this oh, off too chad said up. go ahead yeah this just added some context i think to what i was where i was barking so chad said in the mental health context the doctor should notify a family member 
there are way too many variables to start blanket reporting people for mental issues. Stripping someone of their rights permanently for a potentially temporary issue is freedom suicide, right? So we talk about things like, well, what about anxiety or, you know, all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I, I, I think anything related to the idea that the doctor is reporting something, like in, anything that falls in that category for me is, is, is a massive problem. Yep. And anytime you have, you know, to his point about, you know, what about anxiety? Will that fall into the medical red flag? When you put bureaucrats in charge of deciding, you know, categories and criteria of things, uh, that's always, uh, I don't like bureaucrats having a say on important aspects of my life. Anyway, um, all right, we got to move move along here. Man shot killed with his own gun during robbery outside a barbershop near Greens Point. I'm going to keep this fairly brief, but the point to be learned from this is very important. This happened in basically Houston, Texas area near Greens Point. There's a barbershop there. And it happened around 1230 a.m. Uh, a few nights ago. Actually, actually uh, Sunday it would have been early Sunday morning, so like kind of Saturday night into Sunday morning, right? 1230 a.m. Basically, a man was collecting money for a concert he was hosting inside the barbershop. Must be some barbershop, I'll say that much. <laughs> uh, most barbershops I've been into, Jacob, aren't even big enough <laughs> to have any sort of concert. Uh, he was approached by another man trying to rob him. Police said the robber somehow disarmed the man and then fatally shot him point-blank range and fled the scene. Uh yeah, if you carry a gun, if you decide to use a gun in a justified manner, you better know how to use that in such a way you don't get that sucker taken away from you. Yeah, there's a lot of variables here. I mean, we have retention issues. We also have issues about draw, draw stroke, and we also, you know, things about creating distance and just just general kind of tactics and situational awareness things, right? So without any more detail, it'd be really hard for us to, to provide any you know additional thoughts, but... A certain responsibility, you know, that comes with this. And this isn't the first time, you know, concealed carriers have been killed with their own guns. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It happens far too frequently. In fact, in an upcoming story here, in fact, it'll be the last story of the episode, uh, there's a similar tie-in, okay, to this one. But it fortunately doesn't go so poorly for the uh, the law-abiding concealed carrier. So, uh, sad story there out of Houston. Uh, on to another one here. And this is what we kind of consider a what not to do sort of thing. But it also has, I mean, it's also a justified save in a way too. So let's let's get into it. Fatal shooting outside child's birthday party in Columbia. This was South Carolina. So Columbia, South Carolina ruled self-defense. It basically goes down like this. Two men are, they start arguing inside a gym. It's called the little gym. And I guess it's just like, I don't know, the little gyms, a gym for kids. Anyway, there's a birthday party going on there for kids. Whatever. So the two men start arguing. The argument carries on outside into the parking lot. One man is armed with a knife. He continues to argue with the other man. He then goes back to his vehicle and gets a gun. He then fires his gun at the person he was arguing with. That person, in turn, fired back and killed him. It's like, what the heck, you know? But yeah. and, and why it's in the what not to do is because probably we should try to de-escalate and not continue the argument, especially when we're at, you know, we're in front of kids and stuff, right? But period, you know, point in uh, point, in point is, is that we should not be arguing in the first place. You know, we should try to get that resolved in such a way that doesn't lead to further violence, right? At the same time, I think the guy that pulled the, you know, ended up shooting the other guy did so in self-defense. So, sure. you know, he he did what he had to do, but 
you know, it, it would have been much better if you hadn't done, had to do that in the first place. <laughs> Chad says we should ban protein shakes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, I, I think, you know, there's a couple thoughts here. I mean, you're also it, assuming that the guy who who's who lived through this, uh, who had the gun on his person at the time, um, is is our is our good guy, right? In this in this situation, we don't really have a lot of context, but um, we do know that he didn't try and flee the scene. That he called nine one one. He surrendered to police um, after he fired and killed the other guy. What one thing that I always think about, and I'm trying to understand, is you know he took he took fire first too, right? So mm-hmm. something about the tactics here maybe weren't employed as best we could. I'm arguing with somebody, right? I'm just seeing me and Riley in a parking lot, and I'm like, dude, you suck, and you're like, no, you suck, and whatever, and we get into this argument. And so Riley, you go to your truck to get your gun, and I'm like, and I don't know what you're doing, right? You probably didn't say I'm gonna go get my gun. Maybe you did, but you, you know you you just you just walk off, and I'm like, oh good, it's over, and then all of a sudden I'm getting shot at. So I think another maybe potential lesson to take from this is when we are in those situations, um, we may or may not think that they're over before they're really over, mm-hmm. right? We might get caught off guard and think, oh, it's over now. He walked away. He left. But this actually happens with relative frequency that we see BGs, uh, bad guys, bad gals, come back and reescalate a situation once they've retrieved a gun. Um, for whatever reason, yeah. criminals just don't tend to have their guns with them as often as good guys do. Uh, they often have to go get them. So th- that's another thing is to not drop our guard and, and think that everything's fine now. Good summary, man. All right, so let's let's be good, responsible people. Let's try to avoid fights. And uh, but in the event it's unavoidable, well, we do what we got to do. And in the case of one good Samaritan in Loomis, California, uh, they were able to stop uh, a situation from, from getting even worse. Basically, what happened is at a grocery store, a Loomis grocery store in Loomis, California, right? Sorry, uh, <laughs> a little redundant. I know uh, you had uh, two shoplifters, a man and a woman. They went into the store. They took about $50 worth of goods. They left the store. A security guard noticed them, followed them outside, confronted them, and the man shoplifter pulled out a knife. They, he then tried to stab the security guard. They got into a tussle. The security guard was able to defend himself pretty effectively in that he was able to actually get the knife out of the man's hand, and they began rat- wrestling on the ground. The man that the security guard is wrestling with then tells his female uh, partner to grab the knife and stab the security guard. She apparently, according to witness statement, walked over, picked up the knife, and was heading towards the security guard when a good Samaritan somewhere else in the parking lot drew out his gun and said, drop it. He was he was permitted. He had a concealed weapons permit, so this obviously was not in L.A. <laughs> but uh, he had a firearm on his person. He drew the firearm and told the female suspect to drop the knife. Apparently, she complied, and police showed up on the scene and took both of these uh, suspects into custody. Yeah, you know, uh, I've worked in private security a bit in my day, and this is the kind of thing you just hope never happens if you're a poor security guard making probably you know, minimum wage. Uh, it's a pretty crap kind of job. Uh, for the most part, you know, security guards just don't have great working conditions or pay. And in this case, I would assume, though I don't know, the security guard was unarmed, and uh, that you know they they felt a, a obligation in their in their job to pursue and try and stop someone who had been shoplifting. And uh, yeah, this just went really ugly. But it does give you a sense, and here's here's what I like to take away from the story. It does give you a sense of how committed petty criminals can be. 
You know, in this case, we're talking about shoplifters. Mm-hmm. Shoplifters. 50 right? bucks worth of stuff. Right. And so, it's you know, how, how many times might you hear someone say, well, you know, someone comes up and holds you up for your wallet, you know, that, just give them the wallet and, and hope that they leave. That's not bad tactics, by the way. Like I, I kind of would – got to play it on a bit of a case-by-case basis. But if I can in any given situation like forfeit property and not get into an engagement with, with bullets flying, I will. But this is a great example to kind of illustrate that sometimes people will go to extreme measures to get away with very petty crimes. In yeah. this case, this guy was trying to stab and then told his accomplice to stab the security guard so they could get away with – with 50 bucks worth of stuff. Keep in mind that the security guard may not have done what he had done, uh, except that these people at the time were unarmed, or they appeared to be unarmed, right? It's only after he confronted them about the theft that they had just committed. And he's likely also getting ready to, you know, or has placed calls to report this theft. Um, but uh, they're not they're not armed yet at that point. And it's when he confronts them that the man pulls out the knife. And at that point, things get out of hand very quickly. And so... Yeah, if you're if you're if you're in that security guard's shoes, Jacob, if you, if you're a security, you know, if someone listening to the podcast is a security officer yourselves, an 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 unarmed one in particular, uh, boy, you just you got to be really really sharp, uh, really really paying close attention to you know er- every detail going on, you know, with the with respect to the suspect, and uh, be ready to. Do whatever you got to do. I mean, because like it can get out of hand so fast. Uh, if this guy hadn't had a, this good Samaritan step in, he may likely had been had gotten stabbed, and we'd be re- be reading about a severely injured security guard story or dead security guard story as opposed to good Samaritan, fortunately, who was in the area and was licensed or permitted to to carry that gun, able to step in and prevent something really bad from happening. So crazy story there. I, I I really found myself drawn to this one. Uh, imagine yeah, the next one is really good too. Yeah, and by the way, just one last thought to that. Imagine you you're the Good Samaritan, man. Like I'll tell you what, sometimes it can be really challenging uh, involving yourself in a third party situation and not knowing all the facts or relevant details. Uh, so that's that's a really gutsy move. You got to really you know have a strong sense of what you're doing and, and that it's right uh, to get involved like that. Um. Arizona res- resident shoots four burglars, killing one police. Say, why don't you uh, give us the, the the shakedown on this one? All right, you got four BGs. They wake the sleeping occupants of a home in the early hours, like one something a.m. Okay, so we're we're breaking into a home. Four BGs, and as they wake the sleeping sleeping occupants, the unidentified occupant, so homeowner or person who lives in the home, uh, responds with gunfire. They fired several rounds, hitting all four suspects and ultimately killing one. So uh, one, of, you know, they they all survived to the hospital. One dies at the hospital. That's where they're pronounced dead, and that's kind of the end of the deal. It's still under investigation, so we don't know a lot of details or if someone's being charged. What we know is that four BGs broke in. All four were shot by someone, an occupant of the home, and one of them's dead. Um, I, I thought this was interesting. Uh, for me, the most like unusual little data point here is that all four suspects were hit with gunfire. So either we got very, a very fast and efficient response uh, and or we just shot a lot of ammo. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, <laughs> that was um, – so there's a couple things I see from this. Uh, number one is just a reminder of how often – bad guys run in pairs or more than pairs, right? In this case, we have four individuals involved in this home break-in and burglary. And uh, 
you know, like we talk about capacity, right? And how many times do good guys need to use more than a couple of rounds? Yeah, the reality is maybe not that often, but how often do home break-ins occur where there are two, three, four, and sometimes more bad guys breaking into that home? And yeah, capacity might be an issue if you're carrying a five-shot gun around. I mean, against four people. Now, typically, typically, once you shoot one of them, the rest of them are going to run, typically, but I don't know. You know, you never know, right? So, and every one of those coming in could be armed themselves. We've certainly covered stories on the podcast before where homeowner engages in a shootout, a legit shootout with multiple assailants. And yeah, so crazy story here. Four people breaking in, four shot, one dead. In fact, there was uh, three male suspects and one female, and it was a female that, that ended up dying. So Kind of crazy there. The other thing, too, I noticed uh, the demographics of that group was kind of some older and younger. So there was like late 30s and then like an 18-year-old, and then the, the lady was in her 20s. And, mm-hmm. and you know, so a lot of times you see, I don't know, I, I've read a lot of these stories where it's like 18, 17, 20-year-olds, you know, kind of similar age group. But this one is a little bit more... Uh, uh, maybe there was a equal opportunity employer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 18, 27, 28, 36. Um, uh, and what we don't know too is what provoked the homeowner into believing that they needed to fire the gun at all. Right. Um, that That's another interesting, you know, we True. run into this all the time where sometimes shots start getting fired when they don't need to be, but we don't know. In this case, for all, we don't know if these the BGs were armed, if they were unarmed. Uh, all we know is that all four of them have holes they didn't have previously. Mm-hmm. Yep. Lansing State Journal reports, uh, and this is Sabiwa Township, and I believe this is in uh, Michigan. Uh, Lansing man who was shot and killed during a reported attempted home burglary in Ionia County on Tuesday night had previously stolen a vehicle and trailer from a residence about two miles away. This is a really interesting kind of confusing story. So let me try to make some sense of this. You have a man. He breaks. He forces his way into a homeowner's home. He tells that homeowner that someone was chasing him and trying to kill him. Okay? That homeowner grabs a gun, goes with this individual outside, and doesn't find anybody chasing him or trying to kill him. All right? So then they go back inside the home, and the man starts acting very erratically and becoming very angry with the homeowner and then assaulted him. The homeowner felt he needed to defend himself. He shot and killed this man. All right. They then find out this man that has showed up at this guy's house got there after he had dropped his own vehicle off at the site of another crime where he had stolen a truck and a flatbed trailer with some kind of heavy equipment on the trailer. And then drove it. So, like, this is, I mean, he's clearly under the influence of something. He's a, he's a meth head or something. Chad just commented a minute ago about, or a meth head that can take a ton of lead, referring to need need for capacity. Uh, this, this dude was under the influence of something. You know, he leaves his own vehicle, his private vehicle at the scene of a crime. Uh, he's not thinking straight because, obviously, they're going to track him down in no, in, in no time flat. Steals a truck with a flatbed trailer with some kind of heavy machinery on it. Drives this dude's house, breaks in, says he's being chased, and try and and someone's trying to kill him. Uh, wow. Put yourself in the shoes of this homeowner, Jacob. Uh, how, how do you make sense of this, and, and what do you learn from this? 
Well, we don't know a lot of details. The only thing we really know is that the homeowner did some things right because when it's all said and done, the homeowner appears to be fine and the BG is not fine. <laughs> now, the the key main takeaway is that the, that the homeowner is fine, that he's okay, right? So this is, a, this is a very dynamic situation. Oh, someone's outside trying to kill me. I grab my gun. I go outside with you. We I, I don't see anyone. We come back in. You start doing weird stuff. I feel I have to shoot you. Um, we don't know all the little details, but man, it's so dynamic. I just see so many places where this could have gone wrong, right? So many places where it could have gone wrong. We also don't know if the BG was just saying crap that came out of his head or, or if he was very purposefully trying to create a false pretense that would uh, put the homeowner in a very uh, bad situation where it'd be easy for him to assault that homeowner yeah. and take his gun or take his stuff. Uh, now that you trust me, now you think that we're, it's you and me together teaming up against these other people that are trying to hurt me, that are chasing me. Now I can take advantage of you. Um, we don't know if, if the guy was that sophisticated or, or not. But it does give you some idea of the things that, that could happen to you, you know, whether they're sophistically sophisticated. You know, is that a word? They're planned in a way that's sophisticated or, or not, or if they're just, it's just random crap, but you don't know. And so I just really appreciate uh, that in this case, it came out well, right? Yeah. Now, Chad says that, you know, not to be confused with BGs because right, those guys band. are awesome. He's calling right. you out on that, man, you know, because uh, Jacob insists on calling, you know, referring to bad guys and bad girls as BGs. I've, I've just never been able to get on board with that. You can't say bad girls. That's That, that implies bad they're all gals. Gone. Bad Whatever. gals. Yeah, bad guys and bad gals, BGs. Not to be confused, as Chad said, with the band. <laughs> those guys are awesome, great music. Uh, <laughs> though saying that dates a person a little bit, Chad, just saying. Uh, but anyway, yes, very, very good point. All right, so uh, the uh, the big tactical error that the homeowner made here is when so the dude came into his home, tells him the story. He the homeowner grabs the gun and then they go out to look for whatever I don't know to look for the the guy that's chasing him and trying to kill him. That that I think was was the tactical error. You know that he should have remained in his home. And if he actually believed this man was this man's life was in danger, he should have kept that man inside the home as well. Uh, so you know, but once again, this is someone you don't trust. You don't know who he is. Uh, he, the homeowner, may have recognized that there was something a little off about the dude. But then again, he may have written it off to well, he's just really uh, upset because someone's actually trying to kill him, so he's not acting normally. Uh, but but I saw that as kind of being the one big tactical error is is as we see in so many other instances where it's, whether it's noise of somebody breaking into your car out in front of your house or noise over at the neighbors or whatever it is and so so often we have people that leave the confines of their home the safety of their home and go in search of this bad guy of the of this problem and um, yeah stay inside that's always almost almost always the best course of action. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's uh, get now to this final story. Woman def or def woman kills attacker defending her life at a Chicago bus stop. Uh, take it away, Jacob. Yeah, so this is one we were kind of alluding to earlier when we mentioned the surveillance video that seems to cut out right at the right time so that we can't see exactly what happens. But here's what we know. You have a 25-year-old woman. She's waiting for the bus. She's just chilling, doing her thing. And then you have a 19-year-old man who... Um, confronts her in some way. Uh, maybe, you know, he's trying to um, rob her. You know, we, 
I, I don't know for sure, but there's, there's a confrontation. And in the course of that confrontation, she draws her gun and shoots this man in the neck. Following that, that shot being fired, he uh, manages to get her gun away from her. So he's just been shot with this gun. He takes it from her, and then he decides it's probably a good time to get out of Dodge, right? Why stick around now? And so he doesn't shoot back at her. Uh, he just takes the gun and runs, you know, which is a little bit different from that story we shared earlier where someone took a gun off somebody and then proceeded to shoot them with it. But he just he just takes off with the gun. So in this case, the woman receives only minor injuries. She comes out uh, alive, survived, you know, and, and won this particular attack. But obviously we have we have some issues. There's some problem here. Some errors were committed if the BG uh, gets away with our gun. Yeah. Yeah, and this is also the story I was referring to, yeah, with that other one where the guy got the gun taken away. And I said, we're going to talk about something similar. And uh, yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Over the course of this podcast, we've covered hundreds of these stories like this, uh, you know, justified safe stories or or similar where – there's a couple things, a couple different ways these go. Uh, you have stories where good guy is unarmed, bad guy is armed, good guy disarms bad guy, and then shoots bad guy, right? Then we have stories where both of them are armed, like this in the case of this one, and somehow the you know the good guy shoots the bad guy, but bad guy takes the good guy's gun, and then we have situations where. Good guys aren't, bad guys maybe isn't, or maybe is, takes away good guy's gun, shoots shoots good guy dead. I mean, like, the point is, like, weapon retention is a really important thing to learn and to understand. Uh, shooting from retention, where you're shooting with the gun close into your body, so you can, and, so, and this can even be done with two hands, uh, where you are retaining that weapon, but you're still able to use it because you're in close enough quarters that it's far too easy for that gun to be taken away from you. These are concepts that need to be understood. These are things that we cover in our Guardian curriculum, in our Triple Guardian courses that, that we teach. Uh, and there's many other good training courses out there. But I would encourage you to learn the principles of managing your gun, keeping it retained, and also, if necessary, shooting from a retained position. Because that, you know, I think what happens sometimes is Someone, you know, that what what do we kind of what do we default to? We default to we've never trained to do this. We've never trained to hold or shoot the gun from from a retention position. So we draw the gun and we we hold it out, and it's you know two feet away from the bad guy. Well, his arms are three feet long. He's gonna get a hold of that gun. That's a natural instinct, by the way. Anytime somebody comes at you with a weapon, you put your hands out like this, or you try to get that weapon away from you. So we got to understand the concepts of retention. You're on, you're on mute there, bud. Oh, well said. <laughs> yeah, okay. All that just to say well said. Well, that's going to bring it uh, to a conclusion for us here with the Concealed Carry Podcast uh, today. Uh, a bunch of great stories uh, today, weren't they? I thought so. Fantastic. Yeah. There's so many good things here and good things to learn. And also, whether you're in Virginia, California, Massachusetts, Florida, doesn't matter where, Colorado, uh, we all have fights going on this season, uh, this legislative season, season as it relates to our Second Amendment. So I encourage you all to get involved, uh, to talk to your legislators, to, you know, I'll tell you what, I've been really impressed with my buddy. You know, I'm going to give him a personal shout out. Uh, Robert Butler, he's down in Colorado Springs area. He's a firearms instructor. He's a good dude. He's a veteran. Uh, he, he teaches really, really 
good classes. Uh, he's a firearms instructor himself. And Robert Butler uh, is in a is in the uh, district where a Democrat was elected, but she is very pro-gun. And I appreciate him because instead of taking the the classic you know tact of well can't have them Democrats be in office, so I'm going to fight against them and and do whatever I can to to fight against them. Instead, he's chosen to engage his representative in dialogue and talking about. That his concerns that he as he sees them here at the state level in Colorado, and uh, I think that's really really you know he's do he's I think he's taken the right approach to engaging his his representatives in conversation about the issues as opposed to just yelling at the other side while the other side yells back at us or tells us how how dumb and evil we are and so thus they're going to pass gun control anyway so I'm really concerned about how things are going to go here in Colorado, but uh, I, I plan to. I've been a little bit busy the last few weeks, but I'm going to try to get on on the phone or, or or something and talk to my own personal representatives here in the near future. So I would encourage you all to do the same and engage them in respectful conversation and discourse uh, instead of just telling them you know the same old talking points and and how angry you are at them for what they're trying to do, if that makes sense. So anyway. Wrapping it up here, a reminder that today's episode is brought to you by the top 10 things you probably don't know about self-defense law. Get this Super awesome, easy, relatively short DVD from Andrew Branca and the Law of Self-Defense by heading on over to concealedcarry.com forward slash law, 10 things, L-A-W-1-0, T-H-I-N-G-S, law, 10 things. Uh, great, great DVD. Like I said, a great primer or introduction if you're thinking that you uh, might want to eventually take Andrew's level one course, well, maybe start with this and, and make that decision. I, I think you're going to want to do it anyway, regardless, especially once you watch this. And then also today's episode, other episode sponsor, Live Fire Drill Cards and Log Logbook. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash LFDC and uh, check out those great training products available in our store right now. So with that, uh, Jacob, I'll bid you farewell, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. So with that, folks, uh, we'll see you back here. It'll be Friday before we get our, another, our next episode done. Uh, as we we are going to be out of the office, sort of. <laughs> we'll be away from the recording equipment tomorrow. Uh, but So we'll see you Friday for uh, an, uh, an, our next episode, episode 286. So with that, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. that laws vary from place to place and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws the concealed carry podcast concealed carry inc concealedcarry.com and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm related incidents and laws but things could be different where you live or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this we cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast